this is Save As, a podcast that glimpses the future of heritage conservation through the work of graduate students at the University of Southern California. I'm Trudy Sandmeyer, Director of Graduate Programs in Heritage Conservation at USC. And I'm Cindy Alnick, a communications pro with a passion for historic places and a mission to help people save them. So, Trudy, this episode has it all. Yeah, this is really a bonanza of uh, different issues in conservation, which is that it talks about women's history and it talks about LGBTQ history and specifically lesbian history, which is an aspect of our field that's really not covered very well at all. Uh, Issues of communities of color, economically diverse communities. uh, How do we grapple with the history of places that are economically disadvantaged, uh, you know, all of these different issues that we don't normally talk about when it comes to historic preservation and have not done a good job about really exploring over the years. And yet, there is also a good old-fashioned demolition story. Well, yeah, I mean, the fact that, uh, well, I don't want to give too much away. No, 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 don't spoil it, don't spoil it, don't spoil it. But it is a nail biter. It is a nail biter. Sitting on the edge of my chair. That's about right. to fall off. All right. So having said all of that, before we get to the drama, I wanted to talk a little bit about the archives that Lindsay explored in her research. The One Archives at USC is the largest repository of LGBTQ history in the world. And it's really an incredible resource that our students have been able to tap into for all kinds of projects uh, in their thesis work and in their uh, papers and in their projects that they've been doing. And so it plays a particularly important role in the story uh, that we're going to hear today. And so I now would like to introduce you all to Lindsay Mulcahy so we can hear a little bit more about her project. So you were taking an architectural history course of U.S. architectural history, and one of the requirements is to write a paper about the history of a site. And so you made a very interesting choice in your site selection. I came in being obviously really interested in um, queer spaces, but... Um, Also informal and semi-private and domestic spaces. Um, Because when you think about, okay, like, like, like we're preserving gay history, we're preserving gay bars. And those are incredible places um, and and need all the help that they can get. Um, But I also knew that that wasn't the, the full story. And so I wanted to learn more about that. And so I was at one, just, just loving it just digging around in the archives and I don't even know stumbled on this place called the Alcoholism Center for Women and it turned out to be a really dramatic story. Tell me what you discovered in the course of your research. The houses that I was researching um, that now hold the Alcoholism Center for Women were both built in uh, 1906 and they're these kind of classic Tudor revival mansions. They're like eight or nine bedrooms. And it was part of an early subdevelopment um, in a tract, which is now in the Pico Union neighborhood, but was an early suburb of of downtown. And so there was a lot of wealth that went into these um, big, beautiful homes. 
and like many neighborhoods in Los Angeles as the city grew and that wealth moved east and expanded out away from downtown, there was um, an influx of immigrants and um, a disinvestment in those neighborhoods. At first, in the 40s and 50s, it was a lot of Eastern um, European immigrants. And then by the 70s, it was mostly um, Latinx people from El Salvador and Mexico. By then, many of the houses had been subdivided. There was a lot of overcrowding. There was a lot of absentee landlordism and not a lot of care um, being invested in the in, in the built environment. And that's when this narrative that, that I'd been following and learning from one archive, the 70s are kind of the, the burgeoning gay liberation movement and women's liberation movement. Um, and so there were a lot of really important organizers that were coming together at that time in Los Angeles. It was definitely um, a hub. And there was a recognition that in order to realize the goals of gay liberation, people's basic needs needed to be met, um, and and they weren't. And there was and still is lots of tension and um, lots of the intersections of different people's identities come come into play and sometimes um, into conflict. And a lot of the, the women and people of color at the Gay Services Center weren't really getting their dues, and that came to a head with the creation of the Alcoholism Center for Women, where uh, Brenda Weathers and another woman had written a grant for the first ever alcoholism treatment program for, for women, and particularly for lesbians, recognizing that, that those populations weren't being served by those programs. Um, and they, they got this grant, and then there was this really dramatic moment where uh, the director of the services center tried to appropriate that money for, for a different program. And it was kind of this needle that broke the, the, the camel's back. There was this revolt from within the center. And so Brenda Weathers um, and, a, and a bunch of women who had worked there broke off and founded their or, own organization. So did they use the grant money to actually acquire the homes as well? No. So they... Pretty, pretty shoestring budget, as, as most nonprofits are, um, which is one of the reasons why they were able to, to afford these houses. And when I talked to Carolyn Weathers, one of the founders, she talks about going there and it just being a mess, like <laughs> really not necessarily a habitable place. That was um, a lot of elbow grease where these, these women found this place where, where they could physically separate themselves and um, forge their, their own path for the uh, women um, and lesbians that they were serving and put in um, a lot of physical labor to make it a habitable and a welcoming and a warm place for this activity to occur. On many levels, there's um, space claiming that that is really uh, foundational to the creation story of this organization and to this house. And that's something that is repeated in a different way in the 1980s and 1987. Why was this place in Pico Union? Yeah, there's actually a lot of queer history in Pico Union. Um, that's where Morris Kite's house is. And that was the, there was another house that served as the early gay services center also in Pico Union. Um, and then adjacent Silver Lake and Bunker Hill, when that was a place, uh, held a lot of queer history. Um, and also, it, it was an affordable neighborhood. Because of sort of serial disinvestment in, the, in these first ring suburbs around downtown, 
there's often an opportunity for nonprofit organizations who are looking for affordable places to be uh, to find space. In particular, in the 70s, you could find affordable, large-scale places that you could rent. And so one of the important moments of this story is that when they originally founded the Alcoholism Center for Women, they were renters. They didn't own the property, and that set up the next phase of this layer of history, right? Because they were forced to grapple with a new owner who did not want to carry on this legacy of this place and had a different vision for how to use that land. He, he did not understand the history of the site, either its first history or its subsequent history. And so uh, the threat became very real when he decided to turn the site into a mini-mall. Then what happens? The women get the news on um, Christmas Eve, actually, and 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 it's really devastating because um, it served such an important uh, role in the community for so long. And so many of the women who either um, received services or were part of the the treatment program at ACW were from the the surrounding community. Um, many were unhoused. All were low income. A majority were women of color. Um, and it was going to be a really big blow to, 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 to lose this building, um, both for economic reasons as well as the, the significance for, for the community. And so as, as these women did, uh, they, they fought back. They're a really creative and, and resilient group of women, but, but they're not pr- preservationists. The, the first thing that they did was appeal to the Community Redevelopment Agency, the CRA, because um, it was a redevelopment zone and there was um, a lot of interest in putting uh, more money and investment in this neighborhood, particularly as the convention center is going in downtown and there's um, a desire to, uh, quote unquote, revitalize the area. And the CRA says, we're not going to help you out. It, it, it doesn't really matter to us what the building's being used for right now. But if you can prove that it's historically significant, um, capital H, capital S, then um, we can step in and we can stop this project from happening. Um, And that's when this incredible grassroots campaign starts. They um, get a lot of media coverage. They bring in a lot of really um, heavy hitting women. Uh, Maxine Waters writes a letter. Jackie Goldberg's very involved. And then they get some, some preservationists involved. And one, Chrissy McAvoy, writes the nomination to nominate these properties as historic cultural um, monuments. And it goes through the Cultural Heritage Commission and it passes because there are these beautiful Tudor revival buildings that um, tell the story of the development of early Los Angeles. The names of the monuments are August Winstall and John Paul Crumpt. Yes. So two Old German dudes' names are on the Alcoholism Center for Women buildings. Yep. Excellent. <laughs> Talk about layers of history. It's awesome. And then the CRA did, did what they said that they would, and they stopped the demolition from happening. And they actually helped the ACW buy the building um, and begin to do some serious rehabilitation that, that, that was much needed. 
So you write this paper for your class and a couple months later, you ended up being selected to do a summer program with the Places Journal. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this summer, uh, I was really fortunate to be part of a group of students um, and scholars of the built environment. It was over the summer. It was in the midst of the uprisings over the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. Um, and there was a real desire among everyone in the workshop to to really link the coronavirus pandemic to these ongoing endemic issues of uh, police violence um, and incarceration to to the built environment. I came in with a quote in my head from uh, Robin Kelly about a radical imagination and the need or, or the, the opportunity that history provides to stimulate a radical reimagination um, of the future. How does history stoke our, our radical imagination? And although we're not interested in, in going back, um, there are so many layers to uncover that can really inform and inspire how we move forward. This was, of course, also as uh, monuments to white supremacy and colonialism are being torn down left and right. And I was thinking, yes, there's a lot to come down, but there is also a lot to uncover and lift up. And what in my environment do I want to lift up? And I, I just came back to the Alcoholism Center for Women. And so I had a, a, a second opportunity to, to dive into its history but also focus on um, its work in the present. The title of your journal article is Preservation on the Natch. Can you tell us mm -hmm. what that means? Yeah, on the Natch was a, a phrase that I had never heard of before. Um, but as I was at one going through all of this incredible ephemera uh, from the ACW from its early years, there were a lot of community posters. They had a lot of public events about about the center as a whole. They had a lot of workshops for lots of different groups, but they also just had like fun events. They had concerts um, and like Halloween celebrations. And there was this phrase that was repeated on, on the posters, on the natch, which is a slang for sober. I was thinking a lot about how to invert how we think about preservation and really the, the the core of the field is is so so important. Um, it's about managing change and and really um, focusing in on the things in in our history and our environment that are so core and foundational to to who we are, and letting those things shine and letting those things or or or, or cast shadow. They're they're not always positive things, um, but making sure that that essence. Is, is told and making sure that it informs how we move forward, which can, can be sobering. And so I think that there are so many layers of preservation that have kind of muddled um, or distorted that, that goal. Um, and those are obviously shaped by race and class and power dynamics. And so wanting to, to get to the core and to that essence that I think um, sobriety is, is often about. Yeah, and I just I, I thought it was interesting too how how different subcultures have have different languages um, and different ways of describing 
how they feel and how they move through the world. And I wanted to um, bring that bring that to light. So one of the other things you pointed out in your article was how integral the buildings themselves became to the identity of the ACW, that they used them in their illustrations for their flyers and they they sort of become a part of the of the tale itself. Yeah, that was something that was that was really clear from from the get-go. Carolyn Weathers, when um, recounting the origin story, um, talks about the first time they walked in into the to the building and what a mess it was and the the physical labor that they expended to um, make it warm and make it welcoming for the the women that it was serving and how I, I was really struck by by the fact that these buildings are not just like commercial buildings they're they're houses um, and this sense of home and sense of place is really strong and kind of reverberates through its history to its present day for I think queer people especially the idea of home and family is something that's often really fraught um, and that comes not necessarily from the the home or the family that you're birthed into, but the one that you choose. And the Alcoholism Center for Women is um, a home that that people chose to make. And so the the women from the beginning really invested in this home, and there was this reciprocal relationship between the women and the house it it took care of them and and they took care of it and that's something that that continues today when I was able to visit the ACW over the summer I came in and um, women were were sweeping the the sidewalks and there are these little garden beds um, that people were tending to and I thought that that was a really beautiful thing obviously tangibly it shows this investment and um, ability to, to give back to something. And then in like a more theoretical lens, it's this it's extending this idea of repair and caring and um, healing that, that takes place within these buildings. So you cited in your paper some folks who had written in to support the nomination of the site as a historic cultural monument. And in one you quote someone who said, I owe my life to ACW. In the two buildings located on South Alvarado Street, a miracle happened. I'm not the only miracle. That sent goosebumps up my arms while I was reading that because it's a testament to how place matters to people, how much of a difference an environment can make in the lives of everyday people. I think the the biggest takeaway or or the thing that I'm really moved by is um, the sense of camaraderie and um, sisterhood that exists in this building. There are example after example of how the women um, in this building from many different backgrounds, um, some uh, identified as lesbian, some um, there was a large and continues to be a large percentage of Black women, of Latinx women, um, of women who are unhoused or have housing instability, um, who have experienced um, domestic violence, 
and they really show up for each other in so many ways. And it was really, it's really about self-determination of, of the women within this institution and within these homes. Um, and I think that's a lesson that is so important for preservation um, and just about any other professional field is giving or, or returning and recognizing the ownership that people have over the spaces that are important to them and that they know what is best for their spaces in order to um, retain its value historically and, and culturally. I want to thank you so much, Lindsay, for spending time chatting with me today. And it's really nice to bring this story to light, to share it with a broader audience and to really celebrate the work of this place and these women over such a long period of time in this historic part of Los Angeles. Thank you. Cindy here. Is it me or do sites of cultural heritage typically have to do with the arts, culture, um, civil rights, and not necessarily health or public health, community health, and I'm excited to see that come into the mix more. I mean, certainly this isn't the first, but it's there's work being done around early hospitals and um, so forth, but it's, it's good to see that because Lindsay says, and others have said too, that in order to reach more broad societal goals, you have to first meet basic needs, and I think that's a really key part of the story that's often overlooked. Yeah, and I think community spaces that have such an impact on people's everyday lives are things that we kind of take for granted and maybe don't focus on those stories necessarily. And those are places that make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about community history and places that have an impact on us, uh, that's the story of a place like the Alcoholism Center for Women. Yeah, exactly. And it reminds me of other neighborhood stalwarts that are now being recognized as legacy businesses. And I wonder if this might be considered a legacy business. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I have to say, as a communications editing wonk, that uh, the Association with Places Journal is a great example of repurposing content, which, you know, we can't do enough of. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Save As. Tune in next time for a 1960s take on the Rancho in Orange County's Mission Viejo. I love high style architecture as much as anyone who studied it and done a degree in it. But I was really interested in what the factors were that went into producing tract homes that most of us live in. Save As was produced by Willis Seidenberg with help from Jialing Feng, Lindsay Mulcahy, and Julia Ressler. Thank you to Tom Davies for technical support. Our original theme music is by Stephen Conley, and the Save As logo was designed by Fern Vargas. Special thanks to the communications team at the School of Architecture for their support. For more information and show notes, visit our website at saveas.place. Be the first to hear new episodes by subscribing to Save As wherever you get your podcasts. And please share the love by spreading the word. Thanks for listening.